0: leadership support for more perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation
1: the honorable the chief Justice and the associate justices of the Supreme Court of the United States oh yay oh yay oh before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. For the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable
2: Court. This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. So last season we profiled a guy named Edward Bloom. This was a guy who um, according to his critics had almost single-handedly rolled back decades of civil rights law basically by himself wasn't a lawyer wasn't a politician but somehow he sort of found this way to play the courts to cook up just the right case find just the right plaintiff to target voting rights affirmative action all kinds of different laws that take race into account It seemed to us at the time that he was sort of this hidden architect not too much was known about him in fact at the time that we did the story there was a big case of his targeting affirmative action that was coming before the Supreme Court, and there were these moments where his plaintiff, plaintiff he had found, this young white woman, Abby Fisher, was on the steps of the Supreme Court giving an interview, and he would literally be behind her in the shadows, like almost at the edge of the frame. We just wanted to know, like, who is this guy? What's his story? So uh, we produced a profile, and uh, what I'd like to do, this podcast is update that profile because recently I talked to Ed Bloom again about what he's up to now. And it's really interesting. Maybe troubling depending on where you stand. So gonna play uh, a chunk of the original just to sort of set the context and then follow it with the new interview. If you'd rather not hear the original, skip to about minute 17. Otherwise, producer Catherine Wells starts us off. Again, we wanted to know like, who is this guy? So she paid him a visit.
3: Yeah, so I went to Tallahassee. That's where he lives, or he winters in Tallahassee. Oh, man. Golden Retriever, Mom.
2: You walk in, what initially struck you?
3: His Golden Retriever is what initially struck me, literally, physically. Hey, <laughs> nice meeting you. Of course. And I don't know what I was expecting, but when you hear about these cases, you know, I mean, critics are really. People are mad about these cases. It is
0: deeply disturbing. It's truly outrageous. It's a betrayal of the American people.
3: So I go to meet him and...
1: Your flight from Austin to Dallas to Tallahassee, uneventful and on time and good. Yeah.
3: easy. Yeah. Good. He's like a totally nice guy. A regular guy. What does he look like? Like a dad.
1: There is something in me that just loves tradition and custom.
3: He loves listening to the Great American Songbook. Life is a beautiful
1: thing. Uh, Frank Sinatra.
3: As long as I
1: hold the string. And um, Ella Fitzgerald. I love art and museums, uh, independent films, golf. golf. What's this guy's backstory?
3: Well, he's 64.
1: I was born in a small town in michigan my dad owned a shoe store there my mom worked with him in the shoe store
3: what had been your kind of political leanings up to this point uh, or?
1: well i'm the first republican my mother ever met i hate to use the word typical but it, it really was a typical liberal jewish household my mother and father were franklin roosevelt harry truman democrats Always for the Democrat.
3: And he said he was that way too, all the way through college.
1: The University of Texas.
3: Grad school.
1: State University of New York, where I spent a year studying, of all things, African literature.
3: But he says somewhere along the way, his political leanings sort of started to shift.
1: I spent a summer in Israel living on a kibbutz.
3: And he says he came out of that experience a little less liberal than he was before. And he got married, and then in the early 80s, he's living in Houston, working as a stockbroker.
1: And we met our, our neighbors.
3: This particular couple.
1: They were New Yorkers who had moved to Houston, both grew up as liberals, and- The guy. He sort of ...opened my eyes to the world of the neocons.
3: The guy introduced him to these magazines.
1: Weekly Standard, National Review, Commentary Magazine. Like
3: conservative magazines. And this was around the time that the neocon movement was really hitting its stride. You had all these New York liberals defecting, is what he says.
1: Thousands of individuals who grew up in the 1960s that started to question the wisdom of these liberal policies.
3: And he says, slowly... Slowly. Over time.
1: Very gradually.
3: He became one of those people. In any case, fast forward a little bit. He's living in Houston. Kind of a
1: garden variety existence.
3: And something happens that sends him on this entirely new path. Basically, he and his wife move to a new neighborhood. They move from the suburbs into the downtown area, more urban. And in
1: 1990... When we went to vote for the first time in our new neighborhood, I realized that the Republican Party had not fielded a candidate to oppose the Democrat incumbent running for Congress. This is a district that has almost 600,000 people, and you don't have a choice? You've only got one person running?
3: Bloom decided to run himself.
1: I lost. I don't. That was no great surprise to anyone.
3: He actually lost by thirty-two points. But along the way, uh, something really unusual happened. Um, During that campaign, he and his wife Lark. You know, they decided they were going to go meet voters in their district. They got a giant printout of all of the addresses in the 18th congressional district.
1: What was then called a walking list.
3: And they just started going door to door,
1: meeting people, handing out literature.
3: And they'd walk down say Oak Street.
1: I would take the even side of Oak Street and my wife would take the odd numbered side of Oak Street, and we would start to walk and
3: and he says Very quickly, they realized that the district's shape was funny. Some houses on one side of the street would be in the district, and then houses on the other side wouldn't. And sometimes the district would snake down a highway, catch an apartment complex, come back. It it just didn't
0: make sense. Uh, This is Lark Bloom. Wife of Edward Bloom. It was peculiar because we had uh, maps that we had to follow, and it was very odd the way some streets were in the districts and some weren't, took a while for it all to really sink in as to how this could happen. After I guess about a week of this,
1: we realized that neighbors had been separated almost house by house because of their race.
3: He comes to believe that the reason this was done was for the explicit purpose to create a majority African-American district. This isn't untrue.
2: This act flows from a clear and simple wrong.
3: Part of the reason this was done was the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
2: Millions of Americans are denied the right to vote because of their color.
3: This act was a giant step forward in civil rights. You know, one of the primary things it did is eliminate barriers to voting, like poll taxes and literacy tests, all these you know, strategies that had been used to keep minorities from voting. And then this other thing it did, um, sort of in a roundabout way through a series of interpretations, is it encouraged the creation of districts where the majority of voters were minorities. And that's because, you know, one of the strategies that had been used previously to um, sort of dilute the minority vote was to take minority communities and they called it cracking. They they sort of split them apart into many different districts, so that they were never uh, in the majority enough to elect a representative. Right. So the right. Voting Rights Act tried to correct that. The 18th congressional district was one of these majority minority districts.
1: The district was drawn by the Texas legislature to have a slight. African-American majority. I think about 51% African-American.
3: But this was the problem, according to Bloom. The way they got to that African-American majority was by creating this district that zigzagged all over the city and cut through neighborhoods.
1: I I could not understand. People live close together. They sent their kids to the neighborhood schools. They shopped in the neighborhood shopping centers. They were worried about neighborhood issues. To break these neighborhoods apart by race, seemed so wrong to me.
3: In his mind, this law was actually not limiting discrimination, but actually perpetuating it. Well, yeah. uh, And I I don't know what the average person upon realizing this would have done.
1: But I decided to file a lawsuit.
3: He decided to sue the state of Texas.
1: Called a few friends who lived in the 18th district.
3: A racially diverse group of people.
1: An African-American, a Hispanic, and an Asian. Kept looking and looking and looking until I found a lawyer that I could afford.
3: $7,000 a month.
1: We filed a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of Texas's redistricting plan.
3: The basic charge was yes, the Voting Rights Act was good in its day, but now it was being used as this excuse to segregate people into racially polarized Districts.
1: It worked its way through the lower courts, and to my shock and surprise, in 1995, we'll hear argument now, number 94805, George W. Bush versus Al Vera. Uh, the Supreme Wilson Court took it up,
3: and you went to oral arguments. Yeah,
1: we all did. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. So there we all are. Our Mr. opponents step to the court. lectern, and at issue in this direct appeal. It's the constitutionality of three congressional districts. They make their arguments. That the court below erroneously ruled we racially
0: gerrymandered.
3: Texas basically said, y'all, we have to put people together by race.
0: The Texas legislature has the obligation to satisfy federal
1: requirements, and the Voting Rights Act is a federal requirement.
3: Like remember the Voting Rights Act. We're trying to make sure that there are enough minorities in this district so that they have a chance to elect a representative.
1: Then our advocate. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. Made his arguments. Even if strict scrutiny is. Bloom's
3: lawyer to the basically the state, said, "But look at the map. The map is bizarre, and the only reason it could have gotten this way is because you're only thinking about race, only race." Think about it, that seems messed up. Isn't that messed up?
0: It doesn't matter what your ultimate goal is, you cannot use
2: certain forbidden tools. Race is forbidden by the 14th Amendment to be used as a tool. But in his example,
1: the people of St.
2: Mary's... And, did, you yeah.
1: know, it's a very tense situation. I'm not asking about
0: this somebody. situation. Do you know any other situation in the law in which we allow race to be used as a surrogate? It right. would be unconstitutional. But to use it as a more racism, how was this done? I thought that's how you said this. I don't not, not, did you not. concede that? Or did, really did you, you say, say it would require strict scrutiny? You did say that, didn't you? L- let me explain. I well, did that you that say that or not? Let me find out. Did you say
3: that or not? So in the end, the Supreme Court gives out this very uh, hair-splitty decision that I think gets at this deeper question that in our society and in our discourse, we just haven't figured out how to talk about in a way. And it basically said this, you know, look, if you're defining race just as the color of someone's skin, The government cannot use that in any way. That's against the Constitution. On the other hand, if you take this wider view and you look at race in the context of history, social context, then how can the government address discrimination without taking race into account? They have to. So it's this difficult balance. You can't look at race, but you have to look at race. And the Supreme Court says to Texas, look, All you're doing in this case is sorting people based on how they're labeled on a census. You're not looking at that wider context. You're not looking at if these communities live next to each other, if they share common interests. You're just sorting them based on race alone, and that's not good enough. You can't do that.
1: When the opinion came down, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor five to four. That was quite a day. The day that we won that lawsuit, I was
3: I've got the world on a string.
1: hooked forever.
3: After that, Edward Bloom decided that this would be his thing.
1: It became a passion.
3: He would use the courts to try to strike down every race-based policy he could.
1: The legal team was taken on the road. I recruited plaintiffs in New York. Virginia, South Carolina, to challenge congressional district plans. And we won in each of those states.
3: He helped sue school districts in Florida and Texas. To
1: end the use of racial quotas in K-12 through magnet schools. He
3: went after affirmative action in Houston city contracting. Today,
1: Houston could become the first city to kill affirmative action.
3: That one was actually a ballot initiative, and it failed.
1: But I've been the architect of uh, over two dozen lawsuits.
3: Six of which. Six made it to the Supreme Court, including in
0: 2013. In a five to four vote, five to four, very divided court. The Supreme Court today struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
3: Supreme Court today struck down a very important part of the Voting Rights Act.
0: That key 1965 landmark law. It's considered one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation ever passed.
3: Shelby County versus Holder. This decision gutted the Voting Rights Act. Specifically, there was this part of it that said states and counties with a history of discrimination have to check with the federal government first before they go about changing their voting laws. Basically, the federal government was saying, look, you've been up to all this stuff. Now we're watching you. The Supreme Court said, you know, times have changed. That list was made a long time ago and it's outdated. This
1: decision restores an important constitutional order to our system of government.
3: This was Bloom's biggest victory. When
1: Shelby County came down, I burst into tears. I think a lot of people burst into tears when that came down.
3: You know, it, it,
1: yeah, I, I, and I understand it. It is deeply disturbing. I am deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed with the court's decision in this matter. This
0: decision is a betrayal of the American people. It is a game changer. During the civil
2: rights movement, People died for the precious right to vote.
3: This is Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Houston, Texas. I would like
2: to have the Supreme Court justices go back in time.
0: Go back in time and march with those who marched after Bloody Sunday from Selma to Montgomery. Ed Bloom has a right to his opinion. It doesn't mean that it has to be the opinion of the United
1: States. I, I understand that people were, you know, gravely upset. I also know that there were people who were gravely relieved and gravely gratified. Yeah, but I think what gets a lot of people
2: is that you look at these civil rights videos and you see tens of thousands, 40,000 people in the streets marching. And you hold that, and if you make a split screen in your mind, you hold that. Thousands, tens of thousands of people on one side. On the other side, you, one guy. It does make you ask basic questions about democracy.
1: That's a false paradigm. Uh, it, it, it's That may be your split screen, but that's really not the reality of all of this. Look, in 1964, 1965, uh, America was held hostage by the legacies of slavery and the chokehold of Jim Crow. Fast forward to 2006, the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, the chokehold had gone away. African Americans in the Deep South registered to vote in numbers that often exceeded whites, participated in elections in numbers that exceeded whites. In terms of electoral opportunities, we have come 180 degrees from 1965. We we turned those degrees because of the law which you've helped to overturn, and and
2: and and we don't know to what degree that is the psychology of America changing, or the fact that we had a law that kept people in line, and now that law is gone, and now we see voter ID laws coming back into play, which I think any like sane person would admit is a, is a, is a, is an attempt, a blatant attempt to disenfranchise people. So it feels a little bit strange to, to. I mean, I completely agree with you. Things have gotten better. At the same time, I think. Well, that was because of the law that's now gone.
1: Um, Look, laws change. Laws evolve. and, And at some point, they need to come to an end.
2: So after winning the Shelby County case, Ed Bloom turned his attention to affirmative action.
0: Should universities be able to use racial preferences in college admissions?
2: He found a young white woman named Abigail Fisher. Abigail Fisher believed her race may have hurt her chances to attend the University of
0: Texas.
3: There were people in my class with lower grades who weren't in all the activities I was in who were being accepted into UT and the only other difference between us was the color of our skin.
2: Case goes to the Supreme Court and in that case
3: the Supreme Court has upheld the affirmative action program at the University of Texas.
0: Affirmative action in higher education is constitutional.
3: Ed Bloom lost,
2: but at the
1: end of that original piece, he made it clear to us he wasn't giving up. I'm a long distance runner. Uh, if there's something just emblematic about my personality, I run long distances.
0: And Eve More Perfect is supported by NetSuite. Your business was humming. But now you're falling behind, teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this sounds familiar, you should know these three numbers. one. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. The cloud financial system streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash more perfect that's netsuite.com slash more perfect to get your own kpi checklist
1: this week on the new yorker radio hour a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in
0: politics named barack obama Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch, and he has none of that.
1: A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent
2: Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. And as the court was coming down with its decision against him, he was planning his next move. And that's coming up next after the break. This is More Perfect. I'm Chad Boomrod. All right, so now let's bring the action up to the present. After Ed Bloom lost that Supreme Court case against the University of Texas last year,
1: he kept the case going on the state level. And he took aim at two more schools. I have retained counsel to litigate Harvard's admissions policies and University of North Carolina's admissions policies. He formed an organization called
2: Students for Fair Admissions, and this time the target was perceived discrimination against Asian Americans. Case against Harvard is in the early stages, but I recently called him up to just kind of get an update on this
1: crusade. The ultimate goal is to have the Supreme Court revisit its we think, unfortunate opinion in Fisher and end the use of race and ethnicity once and for all. That's the goal of this organization, and this organization will stay active until that happens.
2: Is this a situation where, like with uh, UT, you uh, actively recruited plaintiffs?
1: Yes. It is. It is. So I did with Students for Fair Admissions what I did with the University of Texas, and that is... um, Working with friends and allies uh, who yearn for the day that race and ethnicity is not a part of university admissions, set up three new websites: HarvardNotFair dot org, UNCNotFair dot org, and UWNotFair dot org. W being Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So it was our hope to find students who had been rejected from those three schools willing to join students for fair admissions and let us proceed into federal court. And that's gotcha. that's what we did.
2: Ed told me he got hundreds of responses to these websites from students who felt like they'd been discriminated against. He winnowed it down to just the
1: students he felt had the most merit. I talked to the kids. I talked to their parents. Each of those kids and their parents who agreed to join and participate as sort of a participating member in a lawsuit. I got on a plane and went to visit with them, learned about their background, let them ask me questions. And who are they? What can you tell me about them? Well, uh, for the Harvard case, they are all Asian. Um, Many of them are uh, children of immigrant uh, Chinese children of first-generation Korean and Vietnamese, and they have superlative academic records. I mean, just startlingly so. Perfect GPAs, perfect SATs and ACTs, active in sports, lots of volunteer efforts. And how many many of them are uh, directly associated with the case? That is something that the judge in the Harvard case has placed under seal. Wisely. What? And I think, uh, well, we remember what happened with the the harassment of Abigail Fisher.
3: Bitch, if you don't take your little ass on somewhere. Maybe if your grades didn't suck, you dumbass, maybe you would have gotten into a good college. Becky with the bad grades. Really happy you and your racist lawyer got shot down.
1: Abby was hounded, Mm. Abby was threatened. Um, we learned an important lesson. And that is, although there may be students who are brave enough to put their name on a lawsuit, the consequences can be dangerous and frightening. So all of the students involved in those three cases, Harvard, UNC, and the University of Texas, have standing as members of the organization. And their names, their addresses, their email will never be made to the public. It's ai mean, it's a funny thing though,
2: because I mean, the idea of a plaintiff, even if it is often uh, in a way a theatrical construct, it, it's strange to have plaintiffs that you can't examine and that you can't say, okay, well, who are these people exactly? What are their circumstances? And you're right, Abigail Fisher, I think, was the subject of some very hurtful kind of harassment. At the same time, who she was, was a helpful starting point for the conversation about whether this should exist. I mean, affirmative action or whatever you would call this doesn't happen in the court, it happens in the world, it happens in society, and this is something that affects all of us.
1: Well, this is very common in federal lawsuits. And the ACLU, which is a membership organization, often sues in the name of the organization, disclosing only to the courts their members who have been directly harmed by this. So what we're doing is not unusual.
2: Gotcha. Okay, so uh,
1: you've said in interviews uh,
2: on this lawsuit that Asian American students are being penalized for being a high achieving minority.
1: How do you argue that they're being penalized? Well, in litigation like this, we know that the court allows the use of race and ethnicity in admissions. What we also know is that you cannot, as a university, have too heavy of a hand using race and ethnicity. And furthermore, numeric quotas are completely forbidden. And how we show that Asians are being targeted in the Harvard case is to look at the number of Asians that have applied to Harvard and what percentage year after year after year has Harvard admitted? And what we have found is that from 1992 through 2013, um, the percentage of Asians that Harvard admits has been remarkably flat. In fact, in 1992, 19% of Harvard's freshman class was Asian, while in 2013, 18% were Asian. Now that doesn't mean much until you realize that the number of Asians applying to Harvard during this period of time better than doubled. Just a quick note here, uh, Harvard hasn't actually
2: released data on ethnicity and admissions for the years he was talking about, so we can't confirm the numbers he just used. We know that Ed Bloom was drawing in part from the National Center for Education Statistics, which is a government organization, And by the way, when he says 19% of the freshman class, it turns out the number he was using refers to more than just freshmen.
1: If those kinds of data points were presented in court in an employment lawsuit against a major corporation like Walmart, Walmart would lose. Any judge would look at that and say, you've got a quota, Walmart, you're employment practices fall afoul of Title VII. Well, let me just
2: push back against that for a second. Um, You know, I mean, that idea that you're expressing and the the sort of the fight, uh, the sort of the spirit of the lawsuit is premised on this idea that if you take away race-based filtering in admissions, that what we would have is a more meritocratic system that's based purely on grades. But I mean, hasn't the meritocracy, isn't that just a myth? I mean, especially at a place like Harvard. I mean, if you look at the data at Harvard, you see that people whose parents went to Harvard, who have family members who went to Harvard, they get preferential treatment in the admissions process. And if you take that out just a few rungs, okay, people who have families that can afford to send them to Kaplan prep courses for the standardized tests, well, they get a better leg up. And isn't that just kind of affirmative action for white people?
1: So there's two ways I want to answer that question. The first is that it is not up to me. It is not up to this organization uh, f- to dictate how Harvard or Texas or um, the University of North Carolina fashion their admissions policy. The only thing legally that we are advocating for is the end of racial distinctions in the admissions process. Number two, I agree that colleges and universities cannot use just strictly grades and SAT scores as an admissions criteria. I believe legacy preferences should have been ended at Harvard and throughout the country decades ago. I think people who write big checks to universities whose children then get a leg up in the admissions process, I think that ought to end. I think the colleges and universities have an obligation to reach out to kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, kids whose family income is small and below average, whose parents didn't go to college, who maybe grew up in a tough neighborhood. Colleges should use that and not race if they're going to give a leg up in helping kids from these disadvantaged backgrounds. And that means that there will be lots of African-American kids, lots of Hispanics, but also lots of Asians and Mm. lots of white kids that get, you know, a helping hand from Harvard and Princeton and Yale and Stanford. There is no reason why an Asian applicant to Harvard whose parents are laborers mom works as a maid at a hotel in New York, and dad works as a kitchen worker at a Chinese restaurant, there is no reason why that kid should be penalized. And white kids, African-American kids, and Hispanic kids who come from professional backgrounds should be elevated ending racial classifications and preferences, and instead substituting socioeconomic preferences is something that both the left and the right can agree on. But it's interesting to, to think about what might
2: happen in the transitional space between, say, an Ed Bloom victory and that remedied admission system. Because I was just thinking in my mind, okay, so take take someone like Abigail Fisher, and let's hold her in the right side of our mind. And then the left side of our mind, let's say you get the Harvard case to SCOTUS, and you win, and the court agrees that there is some kind of quota in place, and they no longer support that. There should not be any kind of limit on how many high-achieving Asian American students get into Harvard or any university. It's interesting to think of the
1: effect that might have on white applicants like Abigail Fisher. Well, we make this argument in our lawsuit. The argument is that African-Americans, Hispanics, and whites are getting a preference over better qualified Asian applicants. So it is very likely. And that, whites, um, interesting. Is, and so you, whites. So you, you We uh, asserted that in our lawsuit. So this is not an attempt to... I don't know, reinvigorate, protect white applicants at all of the Ivy League and at schools like Duke and Stanford outside of the Ivy League. The number of whites is likely to go down. The number of Asians is likely to go up. That's... That's that's, why we don't have any whites as plaintiffs in our Harvard lawsuit. That's why none of the kids that joined Students for Fair Admissions to challenge Harvard were white is because they're benefiting from the discrimination that Asians are suffering there. That's Edward Bloom. Harvard
2: sent us a statement uh, which didn't directly respond to Ed Bloom's specific allegations, but they did say that they do make an effort to create diversity in their student body because when a student encounters diverse types of people with diverse experiences, that student grows And you can read their full statement on our website. But we'll also have some additional information about the lawsuits we talked about, which, again, are in the early stages. That's at radiolab.org slash moreperfect. More Perfect is produced by me, Jad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Jenny Lawton, Julia Longoria, Kelly Prime, Alex Overington, and Sara Kari. With Ellie Mistal, Christian Farias, Linda Hirschman, David Gable, and Michelle Harris. Special thanks to Catherine Wells who produced our episode called The Imperfect Plaintiffs Go back and listen to the whole thing if you haven't, it's pretty good Supreme Court audio is from Oye, a free law project in collaboration with the Legal Information Institute at Cornell Leadership support for More Perfect is provided by the Joyce Foundation Additional funding is provided by the Charles Evans Hughes Memorial Foundation